This is Colossus, and you are listening to The High Regard Show. The High Regard Show. It's... You may be a cunning linguist, but I am a master debater. (laughs) Check out The High Regard Show. New episodes every Monday. Hey everybody, I'm Tom. And I'm Nikki. And this is the High Regard Show. In which we talk about things we hold in high regard. Very high. High above Harlem. Way up on the third floor. Moving on up. Oh, it don't get better than that. No, sir, it doesn't. We are running late this week, Nikki. On what? The whole show thing. I feel like we're usually done recording days ago compared to this week. But now the kids are on vacation, so it's kind of like we Party slipped Central. into vacation mode as well, maybe. <laughs> Could that be the case? It might be. It might be. Party um, Central up here in Harlem. If by Party Central you mean rolling out of bed at like 3.30 in the afternoon, coming out, eating a bagel sandwich, and going back in like a groundhog, then it is almost exactly like Party Central. Well, for one of us. Well, for one of you, yeah. <laughs> for, for one, one of us, us. yes. <laughs> Considering that I was up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at 8 a.m. this morning. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm sure you don't. <laughs> oh, man. I am dying for a vacation. I would actually love to have one. I'm actually jealous of a kid right now. I know. It would be nice to just get away. I just want to get away into, like, quiet and water, near water of some sort. All right, if you can go anywhere. Don't say Tahiti because it's too expensive. But if you can go anywhere besides... Besides Tahiti? Tahiti. Where would Tahiti be? would be like my dream oh, I vacation. Know. I know it would I be. I would buy a one-way ticket and I would never come home. Uh, all right. <laughs> so we're going to get a <laughs> Kickstarter <laughs> campaign. <laughs> You'd be lost without me. And the worst thing is, is you wouldn't even know it. Until it happens. I would know it every time I looked up, but I'm like, uh, so let's get to this week's You Heard, and there would just be nothing but that cricket sound that I like to play once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) So you would be greatly missed if you just packed up and went to Tahiti. Only... If, if only for just you heard, because then you'd have to start listening to what people are saying. And you hate people, so you're oh, not going to want to listen to them. It would be so much. It would be <laughs> so much. We know why you do most of the interviews. <laughs> <laughs> which, by the way, we actually have one this week. We do have one this week, which we'll get to right after you heard. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> why don't we get into the you heard so we can get right on to the intro and get into the interview. Can we play them? You heard music now? Oh, I thought you were playing. I thought we would play it. That's why I was like standing there and I was like doing my little like, the music's playing. Well, it is now. <laughs> Hit it. So speaking of needing a vacation and, you know, just wanting to find some peace, this week's You Heard 
was something that I overheard yesterday when I was wandering around on 6th Avenue between 21st and 22nd. And I actually had to stop. I was on the phone with my mom and I had to say, stop, I need to write this down because I was going to get some beauty products at Harmon. And this girl was talking to this guy and she says, I really want to start my own tea making business. I think it would be very zen. <sighs> do do we're going to play the game where we're going to have to like guess the age of this person? We could play it if you want. I know the answer, so it's not really a game for me, which I like. Oh, I'm not a big man. fan of games. She's between 26 and 32. Yeah, like I think on the lower end, yeah. Oh. Like I w- she's between 26 and probably 28, I would say. That poor girl's family is going to be investing in tea leaves, and all <laughs> she's going to be doing is smoking them in her apartment and coming up with other grand ideas. <laughs> Like that girl that we heard on the train the one time that was like, I'm into paleo. I'm going to do that like paleo thing now. (laughs) (laughs) But like, just imagine though, like, I think it would be very zen. Like, you know, I want to find something that's very zen. Yeah, it would be great. We all do. But, you know, there's this issue of having to have a job. And responsibilities. And and paying bills. Yeah, like, you know, that kind of stuff. I forgot about that. And this is the culture that we have basically raised, like the girls' culture, the HBO girls' culture. I ran out of money. Send me a rent check. Yeah. Can you imagine? Like, I, I can't. I couldn't imagine. I can't imagine. I can imagine being homeless at this <laughs> point in time, but I, but I couldn't imagine actually calling up my parents and saying, hey, send me a couple of months worth of rent checks. I got to walk around naked in my ET body. If it became if it came to the point that we would like be rendered homeless for whatever happens we would so go to tahiti and be homeless in tahiti and that's this week's you heard I'm glad you jumped in and ended your hurt as quickly as you did before I was able to say, but how do we get there? Like, let's just live the fantasy for a minute. Like, you did a good job of actually pushing me there for a moment where I was like, yeah, we would be homeless in Tahiti. And then as the music played on the outro, I was thinking, how the hell would we get there? Because I'm thinking it would be good just to run away right now. Yeah, it doesn't matter how you get there because they're never going to find us. Who are they? They, Tom, with a capital T. <laughs> well, I'm Tom with a capital T. I ain't looking for anybody. I'm just like trying to just lay low, man. <laughs> so as you know, we here at the High Regard Show love our artists. And we were lucky enough this week to actually get an interview with one. We did. We did do an interview. Well, Nikki, I mean... When I say we, I mean you were lucky enough to have an interview with an artist this week. We talked to an artist who was born and raised on the Lower East Side, and his name is Clockwork Cross, and he makes surrealistic wall clocks that are like super cool. Like they feature like just, you know, all sorts of celebrities, you know, with melted faces, some of them, and like very like poppy, and then like, you know, the, and then they're also like very surrealistic. Like they're really cool. So, Let's roll tape, Tom. All right, man. Let's get to it. Hey, 
Um, so, of course, I just want to start off a little bit by talking about, you know, the nuclear family exhibit. You know, can you tell me a little bit about how that show came about? Uh, it's a family show with me, myself, my mom, Marguerite Van Cook, my dad, James Romberger, uh, at Howell Happening Gallery in the Lower East Side on East First, uh, right off the Bowery. Um, originally from the Lower East Side, born and raised. Uh, this is, like, really the first show uh, this major for us as a family. So the Nuclear Family Works from Ground Zero is uh, something that we put together over the course of a couple months with Howell uh, in in that space. But it's actually like uh, a family show. That's awesome. Is it, you know, was it kind of difficult working together or was it, do you think that made it easier because, you know, you were doing this with your parents? Um, we've done a couple of different things in the past. We've had some shows at Max Fish where we lightly just put work that we've all individually done up in the same space, but no, we're actually like interacting and there's a dialogue within the actual show itself. So you can okay. see us talking back and forth. There's a few different things where like some of my, my dad's pastels have clocks in them. Uh, me and my mom have certain themes you can see beyond just, like, the colorways uh, that are actually, like, corresponding and kind of going through time itself from, like, the French Revolution to ISIS. So there's a lot of, like, dialogue back and forth between all three of us. Oh, that's cool. Do you think that that, um, you know, was that kind of, you know, more difficult to do because you were trying to find pieces that were kind of cohesive with, you know, other people, it, you know, is that different than, you know, how you approach choosing works that appear in a, in a you know, show on your own? Well, in the last two years uh, that I've, I've taken art seriously myself, my parents have done this for a long time, but mm -hmm. I did over a uh, hundred art shows in the last two years, and I've done, like, a number of group shows, solo shows, duo shows, trio shows, and doing different things with different artists. I always try to bring new work, but... Um, this time, it's not only just like a family show, it's kind of a retrospective of sorts because we've got different works from different years in the past that might have like a portrait of me in it, or there'll be like sort of collaborative work from when I was a kid. Um, so there's just a few different elements. It's, it's kind of interesting now because I've kind of come into my own as an artist with my clocks and you know, being able to kind of, like, show in with them is just even an honor in itself, so. That's great. And, you know, this, it, the show's been open for a little over a week now, and it runs until the beginning of May. Um, how has the reception been, you know, during its first few days? Uh, the opening was amazing. I feel like we had, like, 200, 300 people come in and out, like, a revolving door and, and a lot of press. You know, people have been kind of giving me the feedback, and I've been getting calls and texts from people saying how, how – happy they were to see the show and you know for me like even in the last year or so all the people that I've known since I was a kid have been saying to me oh we've been kind of waiting for you to do art you kind of have the bohemian torch to bear so sure. it's, it's kind of it's it's kind of cool to be able to show with my folks and people see that I can hold my own and do all these different things and actually just show different work that people actually haven't seen so all the people that have been coming to my shows in the last two years came to the show and said, okay, wow, you're actually not only showing what you do with the clocks, but you're elevating and, and taking it somewhere else as well. And how did you get, you know, involved in clocks and, and creating clocks like this, especially? Uh, all my clocks are based in surrealism. 
So when I was uh, at school in Salvador Valley and Andre Dupont, and I mean, for me, I always try to say like the Clark kind of serendipitously happened, mm-hmm. but there were a number of elements that uh, came to be, and also just like the happenings that made me realize I was onto something. Like me putting batteries into the clocks and them all ticking in with my roommate at the time being like woken up by the ticking and being <laughs> like, what are you doing? I was like, okay, I'm striking something. I'm, I'm hitting a nerve here. But also just even finding the clock pieces themselves was a, a weird thing. I always find money everywhere. It's a very strange <laughs> thing. But I found like $33 in a 99 cent shop in front of a stack of clocks. So I ended up buying all these clocks, which is ultimately, in my mind, uh, a found object, which is big in surrealism. And then there's elements of, like, the face of a clock being the face of a clock, the clock right. is going in the eye, which is, like, the eye of time. But the initial idea is that when you look at the clock, the person's looking back at you. And it'd be someone that inspires and motivates you. So when you look at the person's face, you get that interaction with someone mm-hmm. that you admire. And, you know, when you're looking for the time, you kind of propel your day with whatever you're trying to do. So, I mean, it's it's gone. It's kind of gone a little farther than that with the laser-etched wooden clocks and the melting clocks and all these different ideas, giant plush catfish clocks that are, you know, six feet long. But, you know, the idea initially has always been about the connection between the person and the piece of art and the clock that I think resonates. And once I gave it to the world, all the doors opened. So, interesting. And what do you, what, what was the first clock that you made? Do you remember? Um, well, I made them. Okay. So this, uh, in person, they had like a, like the uh, dorms, you have like the apartments, and all the mm-hmm. dorms and all the apartments had different installations in them. And I lived with a bunch of dancers, so I was like, oh, well, they're going to do this and dance, and I don't know what I'm going to do. So I kind of like happened to fall into these clocks, but I was studying literature. I have a literature degree from SUNY Purchase. So I made all the clocks of like Virginia Woolf. Um, I did like Nice and Hughes. I did Tupac. I did Winston Churchill, I did Mesa's Hair, and they were all black and white, really like shabby clocks I put together on cardboard, just figuring out how to do it, but the same idea with the clock in the eye. And I did a silent auction, and I just let people like put whatever they want, and they all sold. I oh sold out the first show, so I was like, you know, I think like a Mesa's Hair went for like $2, but like Tupac went for like 46 so I, was like, I have something here, you know what I mean? Like yeah. That, that resonated with people, and that made me really happy. So that was really, like, the first set of clocks, and people still have them. I mean, someone had, like, a Frederick Douglass clock, and said so they dropped, like, a little water on its face, and it ran. It was black and white. So I realized I had to, like, protect the face. It went from, like, right. little things to lamination and so and so forth. But it's, it's come a long way just based on the feedback and progression of making the clocks themselves so now I've kind of like honed in on it from 99 cent shops now I import them from England because they have hinges and right. really beautiful decadent gold dials that are the same just larger from the ones I found originally so kept them in the same that same uh, motif that they're just kind of elevating and evolving as I go as I right. do. And, and that's a perfect segue into my next question which is you know how long does it take to create you know each piece um, with the clocks themselves now, I, I like to think of myself as like a like a like a barber or something. When I cut the faces out, if the hair is all crazy, then I have to like take my time and cut them out. If they're around their face, I can cut them pretty quick. I've got mm-hmm. it really down. I like touch my friends sometimes and say, "Hey, you want to try to cut one of these?" And watch them like squirm and struggle <laughs> with cutting it out. And then they're like, "Okay, 
not as easy as it looks, but <laughs> I've gotten I've gotten the hand down. So, I mean, I normally make 50 to 100 at a time. Oh, and it wow. Could me, it could take me, uh, depending on what, you know, what I'm doing, uh, really, it could take me a couple hours to a day, a couple days, some of the pieces, or, like, uh, faces before I even get them to be, like, physical, tangible pieces take longer, like my melting ones. Yeah. I'm altering all the images. I, I almost always have to change the image in some way to make it whole. But, yeah, I mean, it varies. Okay, cool. I know as you were talking about some of the hair, I was picturing, like, the Andy Warhol, and I was like, that must have been crazy to try and cut out. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there's a, part, there's a part of, like, reproduction where I, I did a show where I did 36 Marilyn Monroe's or 36 Muhammad Ali. And I try to keep, you know, the the shape of them the same. But ultimately, they're hand-cut, so they're all one of a kind in that sense. Right. But the idea that they are the same, and the idea that, like, when you look at one face versus 36, how does that change the interaction with that person? Whether it's a wall of different faces or if it's the same face, and you just multitude it, you know, that interaction changes. So there's a few different ways of, like, interpreting the power that comes from uh, person that you would look up to, you know? And, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, how you were kind, you kind of came up in, in art because your parents were artists, you know, but how, you know, you, you grew up in the Lower East Side, which is just, you know, notorious for being such a, like, arts-heavy neighborhood of the city. You know, how did that upbringing in the Lower East Side kind of influence your art? Um. Well, definitely having parents that are open to um, creativity and kind of allowing me to venture off in my imagination is is everything. But, I mean, I, I think uh, I was lucky enough to be at a turning point in the neighborhood where it kind of became a little friendlier. Like, the Lower East Side, when I grew up, was really, really rough. And was even through the 90s. But there was, like, that turning point where, like, you know, the park was just had the riots and all the homeless were out. So, like, we were the first right. kids to be able to play in the park. And even that in itself was still dangerous. But, you know, from even being able to try to cross the street as a kid or being out. I mean, when I grew up, there was, like, a bunch of drug dealers on the block. But even that meant that it was safer because they don't want problems. They want to be able to make money. So, they can't be issues right. on the block. So, they are almost keeping it safer. You know, it's been right. the I... time that I kind of grew with the neighborhood. But, I mean... I grew up in the galleries, you know, and, like, Max Fish. So I like, grew up even when I got older. I was like, I don't even care about going to bars. I grew up in the bar. Like, I, that doesn't interest me. Just having the creativity to look at New York and also, like, feel, like, more responsible to hold that in a certain scheme, too, in, in a unique way. So it's it's interesting in itself that, like, an artist that are still around, so... Awesome. And I understand that you're hosting a music showcase um, presented by Rolling Rock at Webster Hall on April 27th. What can you tell me about that? Uh, that's going to be great. That's Webster Hall, the Marlin Room, which is the middle room. We've got like a bunch mm-hmm. of really amazing upcoming artists. There's uh, Titus, who's really an amazing artist, Patrick Toussaint, Jay Hype, uh, Justina Valentine, Jack Downtown, Jack Downtown, F. Virtue. I'm hosting. I'm going to have, like, a whole bunch of clock or clock installation up. I'm going to make sure that it's rocking a whole night. I mean, it's going to be cool. I'm excited. I've been doing music since I was, like, 13. I've kind of taken a step back from doing that and just focusing on the art. But, um, 
right now it's like doing some hosting things is, is kind of keeping me keeping me in the music realm. It's fun though. Awesome. And when you're not making clocks, what's your favorite thing to do in New York City? Um, my favorite thing to do when I'm not making clocks? I love Tuesdays yeah. and Sundays. <laughs> I like to model a lot around the city, so I jump from event to event constantly. So, like, Thursdays and Sundays, it's like Chelsea and the Lower East Side. There's all the galleries. You can run around mm-hmm. for free, check out all the <laughs> art, what's going on. Every other week, there's some kind of event like Fashion Week, Design Week. Art Week, yeah. I love those events. All those are sponsored and taken care of. They can kind of go into these things that are like corporate sponsored, pay millions of dollars for you to come <laughs> out and have a good time. So I love taking advantage of that. And if not, then I'm just like hanging out on Ludlow or like prepping for another show, just, just taking it easy, writing music, doing music videos, doing a bunch of different stuff. So I keep myself pretty busy. It's <laughs> not good art. Great. Well, it was awesome talking to you. That's all that I have. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, Of course. All right. Bye-bye. All right, we're back. That's what happens. <laughs> Can you tell how hard it is? Like, it's weird, you know, like, all right, before we start talking about the interview, let's just address the inferno that is the studio as we are sitting in it right now. Like, seriously. It's soupy. <laughs> and this isn't even like the beginning of summer. And I feel like this is on point because as somebody that lives here in a city, who has to like go out every once in a while because he has to come out of his hole every once in a while. It's awful, but I do have to leave the apartment once in a while. Really, one of my favorite things to do here is definitely, undoubtedly, going to museums and galleries. I don't do it enough, but I really, really do enjoy doing mm-hmm. it. And you know that for a fact because I every do. year on my birthday, it's like going museum. Music. Of course, yeah. And it's because it's like the only day I can justify getting away with it. And you know I hate birthdays because I'm like, I just don't really give a shit. And it's not just his birthday. He hates everybody's birthday. Everybody's birthday. It's a dumb holiday. It's, it's not a, a dumb d- holiday. It's the day that you were born, you asshole. Look, man, just because someone got loose with it is no reason to celebrate on my account. Like, I had nothing to do with the situation. Says the person who got like an amazing birthday gift this year. It is true, but it's but the point is is that like every day should be your birthday. Can and I just get not? gifts every single day? What if, like what, what if every am day I not important enough to receive a gift every day? It has to be one special day. Like for me, it's I could justify it like, all right, a museum and my annual physical. Those are the two things that my birthday is good for. Because I remember, like, hey, I got to get to a museum. I got to get, like, a physical. I got to get an anal probe. It's always (laughs) an anal probe. It always is. There's never a time. There's never a time where I don't go to a doctor where they're, like, going, oh, one last thing. Turn to your side. And it's like, why? Maybe they're just trying to check your temperature. I don't know. What are they looking for? Like, I just don't understand what they're looking for. Jimmy Hoffa? I don't know. Capone's gold? I don't, I don't know. (laughs) Like, I'm just, I'm just 
worried one day someone's going to go to, like, the break room at whatever doctor's office and be like, you're never going to guess what I found today. <laughs> <laughs> like, seriously? <laughs> Come on, man. But we're off track now. You're off track. I am off track, and I don't know how it happened. I don't either, and I don't like it. But why don't we bring it back to the fact that we just had a good yeah, interview? Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> and, and Thanks for being like on our shit show. <laughs> <laughs> and this is no reflection on Clockwork Cause. Why would it be a reflection on Clockwork Cross? I'm I'm just saying. I want to just make that perfectly clear. No, we ramble. We're ramblers. It's true. We're, I mean, because I do definitely like his work a lot. Yeah, no, is, I do. Oh, my gosh. There are so many clocks. I was like, hmm, I like that one and that one and that one and that one. It is It is very, very cool stuff. But I don't know how we got on it because we were talking about like going to museums and galleries and stuff like that. <laughs> yes, Tom. That's what we were talking about. One of the coolest things about the museums and galleries in this city is it's stuff that you're not necessarily going to find anywhere else. Like if you go to the Smithsonian, you're going to see, you know, there'll be like paintings by masters there. Mm-hmm. There'll be like, you know, things from movies and such like that, which they consider like. Not necessarily art pieces, but stuff that have to do with pop culture and stuff right, like that. Right, just part of culture itself, yeah. Right. Where here in this city, I've been to exhibits where people have taken a million straws and stacked them against a wall and said, this is art. And going in, I would be like, this is somebody who got a grant to do the laziest thing they can possibly do in life. And then you walk into this room and you see this thing. And for whatever reason, you're just like hypnotized by a million straws. You're (laughs) like, holy shit, this really is something that can provoke emotion. And I think it's like a testament to the city and the people of the art community to be open to seeing things differently than the normal person can. Because you and I, we know Somebody lays a million straws out in a pile. Someone explains that to you and you're going to be like, I don't care about that. It doesn't make a difference. If someone says, hey, listen, I invented the iWatch. That's amazing. If someone says, I invented, I you know, I made a clock out of a painting. You're going to be like, eh, that's amazing. But then you see it and you're like going, no, it really is something right, pretty yeah. incredible by the time you get around to you know, actually investing your time in it. Yeah, because they like the people here just see the world a different way and it really like opens it up for other people to who maybe don't see that originally, like with a million straws or, you know, a melting clock. Like, you know, and it's really cool that it opens up the world like that. It opens up your eyes like that. It is neat. But I wonder how it would be like if we tried to explain that to people like that we've known over the years. Not art people, not, you know, not anybody involved in this world right. or from this state. Right, because Cross, like, you know, was, like he said, he was brought up by, you know, artistic parents. So, like, that informed his life, you know, and even though, like, he went to school for something completely different, he ended up turning to the art world because that's just what had already always surrounded him. And, you know, I'm the only one in my par- of in my family that doesn't work in food service or, you know, my parents owned a restaurant. My, you know, my brother works in restaurants. My dad works in restaurants. Like, it's, 
just very like it was just not like me I was kind of like the black sheep because I liked writing and I liked being creative and I would just like draw and I would write and things and like you know my parents were always really supportive but they never really understood that like well you can make a living out of that like you know and they they think that I just sit there like oh you just sit on your ass all day and like my brother has literally said that to me like a million times like all you do is just sit there on your ass all day and it's like yeah, I do, but it's not like I'm not sitting there writing things. Like, we're writing millions of things a day. Yeah, absolutely. And I used to get that from my parents, too, before, because I went to art college, and I remember them saying, like... No, you didn't go to art college. You went to Pratt. Own up to that shit. It's still an art college. But when I went, it was just a matter of, you know, my parents were like, hey, listen, if you want to change... You can go to another school if you want to go. Like, you don't have to do this to your life. (laughs) You could be something if you really wanted to. It's not too late. And it was kind of like, no, there's this whole other, like, subculture out there that unless you, you know, take a moment to identify it and see, like, how it works, you're not going to get it. Like, you're just not going to get it. But I feel like something like this this visual type medium people can get a lot quicker Mm -hmm. so i mean i love people like that like illustrators fascinate me it's always what i wanted to be was like an an illustrator type person i can't do it not like not like real people can do it right and it's kind of like i think that's the attraction so anytime we get an interview with somebody who was able to like do this sort of stuff it's a very special thing the way i see it it is. I think it is. Like, and I love, like, you know, le- learning about how someone, you know, how he talked about how he just, you know, came across these clocks and he was like, well, I'm going to see, like, what th- what happens with this. And now he's, you know, having a family gallery with his, his parents and, you know, he's getting written up in places like the Paris Review and things like that. So, I mean, like, you just found, like, these, this money near those clocks and then, like, now you're, you know, you're legitimately doing something with them. And, like, there's there's something special about people who are able to just make a life out of something that drives them to be creative. Like, I, I love that. I'm kind of still waiting for, like, my turn at getting something like that. Are you saying this isn't it? <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> no, I Mr. do know what Mr. you Mr. Backer, <laughs> like, Mr. Backer, who might be listening, you know? <laughs> You'd, oh, you're saying you want to actually make money off of something <laughs> like this as opposed to just yeah, like i'd love to like turn this into something that's something you know what i mean that's bigger than you know the sum of all its parts eventually yeah i think it will happen you know the one thing that kind of got me with uh clockwork do i call him clockwork or clockwork cross or just call him cross you can call him cross i'd call him Cro- i'd call him cross i cannot speak today all right well the one thing that stood out for me about Mr. Cross, would that be good? That's fine. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm sure. I'm speaking well, on his right. behalf. Well, I'm his then, emissary with you. I mean, well, you're the one who had the relationship with the guy. <laughs> Me, I don't, you know, I'm just jumping in in the end here. Was that he did 100 shows in the last two years. Over 100 shows right, in the last yeah. two years. Which is kind of mind-blowing because from the interview, I'm understood that he really over the last two years started taking the art seriously like to really focus on this aspect of his life yeah so as soon as he like starts like getting serious at it he's doing like a new show someplace like every week for the last two years pretty much yeah i mean maybe yeah that's 104 if over two years if it's 52 weeks in a year so that's like 
a new show every week, man. That's mind blowing. That is like that's that's crazy, and especially like something like the, you know the nuclear family, which is going on now at Howl happening. You know, that's done with his like like he said like how he was explaining like he's doing it with his parents, and like it's kind of like this cohesive thing where like one of them might have work that shows a clock one might have him as like a little kid you know like so they're kind of like in this similar universe of like work so like when I think about it's not just like you know putting things up on a wall and it's like whatever like I was always fascinated by the process of like curating a show I never understood how you like to have that mind's eye to just be like no, this goes here and this piece goes with, with that, you know, because I've written a million things like in the past 10 years that I've been like a journalist. And there are times where like a friend will reach out to me and say like, hey, oh my God, like, did you read this interview? You interviewed this person. I'm like, I did. Like, I don't remember <laughs> things that I've done in the past. You know what I mean? Because like you just get into that zone and stuff. So it's like, it's interesting to me that like they were able to take some of their past work and like find a way to like make it cohesive in this show. Yeah, which is very, very impressive. Um, and the fact that they came from the Lower East Side, I mean, that's like tough, man, back in those days when yeah. he was growing up and then to be successful. Because a lot of people who grew up like in that area didn't come out of it. And on like the good have, end of it. Yeah, and have a gallery opening right. once a week for like two years. I mean, that's not how most of the people who grew up in that right. area, you know, wound and up in life. there, you know? Like, I mean, it's a testament to like his, how the strength of his parents for staying in an area like that, like as it shifted through its changes. Yeah, well, I mean, back in those days when he was growing up, um, you know, the Bowery, if you go all the way back to like the time of early New York. Oh, yeah. Like the like Gangs the, of New York era, like the yeah, 1800s like the 1800s, and stuff. Like, yeah. I mean, the Bowery was notorious for, like, its crime and stuff. And then later on, it became, like, all the homeless shelters mm-hmm. that, like, wound up being over there and the missions that came in to help. And it wasn't really until, like, well, let's say the 1960s is when it really, really went downhill. And, uh, I was reading about this, and they had said that it was considered, the Lower East Side, in the 1960s, was considered a persistent poverty, crime, drugs, and abandoned housing situation that wasn't re-resurrected or resurrected until the early 2000s. So, up until 2000s, this place was just a hole. Right, yeah, and then like, <laughs> and then you see it now, and it's like, oh, you know, ICP is gonna have a museum down there, and that graffiti-covered building is probably gonna be turned into condominiums, and you know, it's like the whole changing face again, like it's yeah. renewing itself almost. Well, even like I remember you and I going out for one of your friends' birthday parties, and when we went out, it was at a whiskey bar. Wasn't it a whiskey bar or a yeah. bourbon bar? Like it, one it of those was, things. Well, yeah. It was one of something like that, yeah. And I remember think when you told me like where it was by, I don't really like go to the east side that much. Like I'll go to the East Village, but not so much the lower east side because growing up, like there really wasn't a lot going on there. There was like a lot of projects. There was like little stores. Most of them like weren't even like in use at the time. But so I mean there was no reason to really go down sure, there yeah. at all. And then 
you know, in college, it was like a place to go because they wouldn't proof. So you can like go there and, you know, get drinks and, and that was it. Like it would be like a chill place, but there really wasn't anything going on. So it wasn't until semi recently that we ventured over there for this birthday thing. And it was like, wait a minute, we're down by the Bowery and we're spending $23 for a glass, a small <laughs> glass of whiskey. And it was kind of like, when the hell did this happen? <laughs> because like it it's just amazing how over time these things can change. How New York something becomes. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it is just mind-blowing and you know again to be a creative person in this field and and like he said it's only been 2 years for him that he's actually been doing this but for his parents who've been doing this for their whole entire lives. Like I'm sure you are just like me, where we wake up in the morning times and there are days where just like, I don't want to be creative anymore. Right, yeah. Like, let me just go sit at a desk and do something mindless for eight hours that I can just get a check and not be able to leave. Because when you're creative, you can't turn it off. So, like, for instance, if you're writing an article on something, Mm -hmm. you're writing... And then all of a sudden, you're like in the middle of it, you get stopped, you go take a shower, all new ideas can come out. Right, yeah. Whereas, if you're an accountant, and you're adding up numbers at a desk, at some point in time, you could just put your pen down and walk away. You're not going to think about that when you're in the shower. Who gives a (laughs) shit? Like, it's a very, it's a very consuming world, the creative world. It is, yeah. Like, it's never not, like, in our heads... Like, even when, like, you know, and I don't do a lot of, like, my own personal writing, but, like, that doesn't mean I don't think about it. It doesn't mean that I don't bounce ideas off my head, you know, or, like, write them down for later and then never get to it because, you know, the exhaustion of life, you know, takes over. <laughs> right, but the fact... And I'm trying to change that. <laughs> but but the fact that you're even compiling ideas, like, there's not many fields in this world that can do that outside of creativity. Like, and especially, like, in the Lower East Side, like, back in the 80s and the 90s, and especially, like, the 70s, when things were really going to shit down there, Mm -hmm. to, like, actually be able to, like, you know, have to worry about getting home safely, you know, like, if you go to the store, and then come home and think about, like, what your creative process is going to be on top of it, that's very impressive. And it's also like, and to, to come out of it with, you know, a surrealistic look and not like a violent look to it. Because I would think that like coming up through, you know, such violence and, and things like that. But I mean, like, I loved the part where he talks about like, you know, how the drug dealers are like, the streets are almost like a little safer because of the drug dealers. And like, that's something that we could see, you know, every day coming home because like, like we've said before in past shows that like, you know, we've gotten like, you know, chummy, I guess you will, you know, with our neighborhood (laughs) drug dealer. And, you know, when I come home at one o'clock in the morning from work, it's like, I feel not so scared because I know that this guy is like, hey, how you doing? And like, it's almost like signaling, like, don't fuck with this person because, you know, like, I've gotten to know her over the last three years just passing by and things. Right. And that same drug dealer is the same drug dealer every time I come up the stairways late. He'll be there, like, going, 
oh, like, you know, your kid just got home like an hour ago. She's staying late at school tonight or something like that. And I'm like going, you are the best tattletale drug dealer. <laughs> he is a tattletale. <laughs> he is. And I'm like, let's talk hockey for a minute. And like, we'll have like these things in common and stuff. But there definitely is a sense of community. Just because your community isn't like, you know, let's say upper scale or rich. Soho. Yeah. We're, we're not the Tribeca crowd. Like the doorman's not going to tell us like what the kids were up to. The drug dealer is going to tell us what the kids were up to. That's our version of the doorman up here <laughs> in, what is it? Manhattan North. <laughs> <laughs> mono. We'll call it mono. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like mono. <laughs> <laughs> we just trademark that, I hope. <laughs> oh. But yeah, it's true. Like, you know, it just does like create this like, you know, kind of little community and it, it makes you feel, you know, it makes you feel like just, you know, it is what it is. And it's not something that people from like, you know, I remember telling my mother like, oh, yeah, like because she freaks out about like me coming home late all the time and stuff. And it's like, don't worry, man, like the drug dealer's got my back. And she's like, you know, and that appalls her and that appalls like a lot of people that like we've said that too because it's like you're like friends with the drug dealer it's like no like we don't invite him over for dinner you know but it's like i would <laughs> like i don't have a problem with him at all no, like I, I I, he's a really super nice yeah, he's guy. a really nice guy and it's like you know he's just trying to get through this thing called life well that's it in memory of swiggle hmm. <laughs> you know the other thing is like there's a difference in the connection between art and what people of i guess my generation is and below and art and what people of the new generation is and i guess going forward the new power generation you just keep going for it you gotta let it go to dude's dead i stop it oh my god he's dead but you know here's something weird when he had said that he used to use the dollar store clocks Mm -hmm. for his art and then somebody spilt water on one of them. And it ran, yeah. And then that's when he decided, like, I'm going to start buying my products from England for the insides. And all of a sudden, now it's no longer a dollar store clock. Now it's like... It's no longer like a craft project. It's it's a it's a thing. It's, a, it's expensive. There's, there's Now there's value put into it. Which I'm, I don't understand. I really don't understand why there needed to be value put into it. Because whether it's where I have bought in clocks in the past, there's at like stupid like auctions and things like that, just because I'm like going, I love, I love the way a clock looks sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I do have this very bizarre clock fetish where I need to have like a bunch of wristwatches and clocks around the house or whatever. Not so much lately. I've been trying to calm that down because of the amount of room that we have here in this Right, apartment. of course, yes. But the fact of the matter is, is that I'll go and I'll, like, try to buy a clock or something like that. And if it breaks, it breaks. It doesn't make a difference to me because I didn't buy it to tell time. I can look at the cable box to tell time. I'm buying it because I like the way it looks. Mm-hmm. And as an artist, I feel like whatever you're comfortable doing your medium in is fine so long as you know it's what you want to put into it and now he's kind of changing up like his materials and stuff like that Mm -hmm. because of the callousness and you would never hear you know 
of like another painter or something like that. Like, I mean, you know, like a known painter, like uh, a Van Gogh saying, I got to find a way to laminate my paintings because somebody might drop water on this. It's right. like going, it's the art. You have to be respectful of it. Right, yeah, like how did you spill water on a clock? Right, and it's and it's a matter of you bought it knowing it was art. And it might not be an expensive piece in art, but you blew it. You took something that somebody made and you blew it to the point where this person had to rethink his process and start using different materials. And it just goes to show like the times that we're in because I feel like in previous years, up to like the last few generations, there was more respect for it. Whereas now there's less respect for it because it's being looked at as because every, it's disposable. You can right, just make yeah, another because, one. Yeah, because like, everything is so quick, quick, quick. Like we're just a very disposable society. Which is unfortunate because I like the idea that he was using dollar clocks and turning him into something because it's kind of like you're showing that you don't need to have something of super high end value in order to make it valuable to somebody. Mm -hmm. Right. No, I see what you're saying. Because at first I was just like, okay, you just want something to be pissed off about. No. But it's like, no, now like I understand where you went with that. And like it's, it's true, you know, like. Like, it's weird. We have a, just a very different respect level, like, over the years. And I feel like as if art is one of those things. And maybe it's maybe it's because we are a culture of disposable things. Maybe it's a matter of people just aren't learning the value of what art is because of so many art programs leaving schools and stuff like that. When they get out, there's not an appreciation for it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that, that could very well be it because, you know, so many schools don't have art. Yeah, and it's crazy that they would cut that out because it's one of the few ways that people can communicate through different language barriers and things like that where, you know, you can you can invoke a, a positive or negative emotion through a photo. Right. And like I actually got in like a fight with my dad when I went home about this because, you know, like as you all know, I'm from Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania just, you know, put into motion legalizing marijuana and my dad when he hears marijuana he just thinks hippie dirtbag druggie blah 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 blah. and you know it kind of pisses me off because it's not people who smoke aren't you know scumbags they're not hippies they're not dropouts some are very high-ranking officials in the world i'm sure and (laughs) (laughs) allegedly and people who hold things in high regard people who hold yeah like people who hold things in high regard and You know, he was just like, we were talking about Colorado and about, you know, just things that, like, legalization could could do. And he's like, oh, what? It's just going to make a bunch of potheads and stuff. And I'm like, no, it could it could lead to artistic. Like, what if what if I couldn't write? Like, what if Tyler couldn't take photographs and like she had to be stuck in a shitty job that she hated for the rest of her life? Like, that's not life. And like the selfish world that we live in now, like maybe one good thing that it does is it's like it shows you that you know maybe you can do what you want in life if you're willing to make the sacrifices to do that or you know you have the means to do that like even if you're not somebody who comes from like you know a super wealthy girls lifestyle kind of family but like it is all about kind of just finding your path and maybe that maybe that's not so bad like maybe millennials might be onto something because they're the ones that i think are really pushing that, like, I'm going to do what makes me feel, what makes me find my zen. But you see, here's the thing, though. I feel like it's the flip side of that that makes millennial bad. Like, I feel like they 
they found a way to basically just make life level to the point where they don't need to be stressed over stuff. Like they know they can. So uh, and I'm not saying all of them. Gonna be okay. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and again, I'm not talking for all of them. Just like you know, just like the cliche millennials that people refer to. They do know that everything's going to be okay. There is no need to panic. And they don't panic over it for the most part. I want to not panic about life. But I feel like a lot of those people that are like in their like young 20s, early 30s, they haven't hit that 40-year-old wall yet. <laughs> which is a whole different animal, man. When like, they're like, we don't need a straw artist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, what do you mean I'm not getting like a $2 million grant this year? I was expecting to do another million straws. <laughs> We've moved on to popsicle sticks now. <laughs> now that just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> this is out of control. The straws is one thing, but popsicle sticks, now you're getting crazy. <laughs> No, but I mean, they know. But on the flip side of that, it's I feel like it's a lot of people in this world when they don't have problems, they need to make up problems. And that is the situation where a lot of the younger people that I deal with on a daily basis, they'll like go and they'll say, these are the things that I'm dealing with right now. And I'll listen to like some of the things. And when they're done talking, it'll be like going, yeah, dude, at the end of the day. Like, you don't have any bills. You're, yeah. Everything is paid off for you. Like, you don't have kids yet. Like, <laughs> you, like all worries are so different. And I feel like that's the communication gap. Like, it's right, like, yeah. it is so hard, man, to, like, associate and then, like, relate to, like, what they're saying. Because it's like, I would love to have your problems. And I don't want any problems, but if I was going to have any... I want yours. <laughs> any day of the week, yeah. man. Yeah. Any day of the week. So, there's that. And the last thing that I got from this interview... Yes. Was he was talking about doing his music show that mm -hmm. he's doing coming up. At Webster Hall. At Webster Hall. And I couldn't help, man, but just, like, say, I totally get that. Like... People going from, like, art to music and people going from writing to doing design. And even in our case, like, departing our creative comfort zones to do something like this. It's like once you're a creative person, you're just kind of constantly just expanding. Right, like finding something else that adds to your creativity. Which is good because, I mean, he's been doing it for two years. After a while, I mean... And he's done music for, like, so much longer before that. Right. But no matter what you do, you need to have, like, another creative... Like, there always has to be another creative yeah. outlet on the back Just end. Just to keep yourself, like, keep pushing yourself. Because I'm, I'm sure, like, you know how he says, like, he was making, like... You know, he'll make, like, a hundred clocks at a time. So, like, I'm sure that, like, that turns into his, like, you know, mindless kind of, you know, almost automation that, like someone will get like at a job you know for it for example you know so and i think that's really cool that like he could bounce back and forth from this and he's you know bouncing around town going to different events and seeing what's out there like i think that's really really cool and i think you have to and especially in a city like this where there is so much to see mm -hmm. because and it changes all the time it does and i don't know i, I can't speak for every other major city i could tell you like 
Los Angeles is probably the same way. Chicago is probably the same way. New York's the same way. I don't know if I know for a fact, like I can't say like Wilkes-Barre Scranton is the same way where you're going to see like these crazy galleries where you're going to just see piles of straws or melting clocks or anything like that. Scranton actually has a pretty big art scene which is like surprising like it was always like a very healthy art scene and like it and the community was very supportive of that as well do you know the one thing that i don't like about these small town things though what tom <sighs> is that Clip it notes. is <laughs> such a hassle because nobody wants to go anywhere in those areas. I remember living in Wilkes-Barre and thinking like, I'm just going to drive to Scranton. It's a 15-minute drive. If I'm driving anywhere in Wilkes-Barre, it's also a 15-minute drive because everything is slow traffic. You're not jumping on the highway and going anywhere. But people from Wilkes-Barre wouldn't drive to Scranton. And people from Scranton wouldn't no. drive to Wilkes-Barre. And it was literally 15 minutes. And the people that would drive, like, from Scranton to Wilkes-Barre, like, that would be willing to go to Scranton, because, like, all the cool stuff really did happen in Scranton. The people in Scranton would be like, so, like, you don't belong here. You're, you're from Wilkes-Barre. And it's like, I'm coming to support your events. Like, I drove here. Like, I'm the one that, like took the initiative to come up here and support what you're doing because I truly loved it. Like they used to have this like great bookstore that I used to love going to. And it was like, you know, and people would just look, be like, why are you here? You're from Wilkes-Barre. And it's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> but everybody would complain so much about it. They'd be like going, oh, I'm not going to drive all the way down there. It's like it's going to take you that same 15 minutes to get home. But we say the same thing about Brooklyn. Like, there's only certain places that we would go in Brooklyn. We do say the same <laughs> thing about Brooklyn. But in the same respect, everything Brooklyn has, we have. So we don't really need to. Wilkes-Barre couldn't say that. Like, Wilkes-Barre couldn't say everything yeah, Scranton has, had, we have. Yeah, Wilkes-Barre like, had nothing. No. So, but here in Manhattan, it's kind of like, I don't necessarily need to go to, like, you know, a weird museum to see a cool, like, I don't know, a mobile. What's something cool? That might be cool. A mobile made of beer bottles. I can just see made that of, right here. Made out of beards. Yeah, made out of beards. See, they might have that in Brooklyn. They might not have that in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> that is one thing they might have, but I could pretty much do without that. So. So, I mean, it was awesome that we got a chance to talk to him. Yeah, thank you so much, Cross. Um, we really love your work, and we really appreciate you talking to the High Regard Show. And now, why don't we get into keeping on topic with a little Did You Know? Did you know? Did you know that by the turn of the 20th century, the neighborhood had become closely associated... What neighborhood? The Lower East Side. Okay. Maybe I should do that over again. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know? <laughs> I think it's funnier if you didn't. Like, I think it's funnier if you were just like, the neighborhood, I could just be like, what neighborhood? Like, I think well, I'll just funny. leave this all in, but I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't. Don't leave it in. I totally will. Did you know <laughs> <laughs> that by the turn of the 20th century... The neighborhood, known as the Lower East Side, had become closely associated with radical politics such as anarchism, socialism, and communism, and was also known as a place where many popular performers had grown up. 
Such people include the Mox Brothers, Eddie Cantor, Al Jolson, George and Ira Gershwin, Jimmy Durante, and Irving Berlin. Wow, that's a, that's some big-ass names there. Right? Like, wow. Like, you don't realize how many people come from this city until you start doing research on it, and you're like, everybody comes from New York, but somehow, some way, ends up in California. Isn't it, like, so bizarre? Like, even, like, go, just going down the list of actors and actresses that come from the area. Yeah. And then it's kind of like, they were all born here, but... I guess since movies are made on the West Coast, they all just tend to like go there. But we have like a plethora of talent just oozing from ours. Oozing from the pores of New York City. That's right. Oozing. <laughs> Later, more radical artists such as beat poets and writers were drawn to the neighborhood, especially the parts which later became the East Village. By the inexpensive housing and cheap food. Hmm. <laughs> Wait. Which is... Wait, what? <laughs> which neither exists of anymore. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed it. After World War II, the Lower East Side became New York City's first racially integrated neighborhood with the influx of African Americans and Puerto Rican areas where Spanish speaking was predominant began to be called <laughs> Loisita. 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 Does it sound good with my accent? It does, yeah. All right. That's it. That's this week's Did You Know. <laughs> <laughs> you have to do that again because, like, you were reading like a retard. <laughs> like, make it bigger if you have to. Like, what is it? I don't know what my problem is with my eyes. I... <laughs> I feel like I can just leave it like it is. You don't, because you don't wear your fucking glasses. Like, you'd see if you wore your goddamn glasses. All right, let's just try this again. Jesus Christ. I'm about to say Loisita again. That's, like, not an easy word. Neither is it. You're reading and you're like, hey, Whipple, squeeze this (laughs) on writing well. Like, whatever, man. (laughs) We can't all be master readers. Did you know that by the turn of the 20th century, the neighborhood, now known as the Lower East Side. (laughs) I know you love this because although people don't know, this is the third time that we're doing this again. Third time's a charmer. Had become closely associated with racial politics such as anarchism, socialism, and communism. And was also well known as a place where many popular performers had grown up. Like who? Well, people such as the Marx Brothers, Eddie Cantor, Al Jolson, George and Ira Gershwin, Jimmy Durante, and Irving Berlin. I did not know that. Like, I did not know that the Gershwins and... Who was Everybody the, else that I said on that list was, that you weren't listening to did just you say, now. Did you say Leonard Bernstein? Yeah, you heard me say that. it. Not once, but three you times. You heard me say I know. it three times. But now. then, like, I totally just blanked out because I really wasn't. But I, wow, I never knew that, though. Like, I really never knew that those guys kind of grew up down there. Wait a minute. Did you ask me if I said Leonard Bernstein? Yeah. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it? Oh, it was Al Jolson, George and I were Gershwin, Gershwin. Eddie Cantor. The Marx Brothers, Jimmy Durante, 
Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin. He was the guy you were looking That's for. That's what I was thinking. Okay. All right. Well, we got that going well, for hey. us now. Later, <laughs> more radical artists such as beat poets and writers were drawn to the neighborhood, especially the parts which later became the East Village by the inexpensive, inexpensive housing and cheap food. The what now? Can you imagine, man? Like, you can't even go to St. Mark's and get, like, a $5 bowl anymore. You can't do anything. A $5 bowl? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like, whatever. Anyway. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> like KFC, right? <laughs> yeah, like a KFC bowl. <laughs> yeah. Try to look for that in St. Mark's place. <laughs> After World War II, the Lower East Side became New York's first racially integrated neighborhood with the influx of African Americans and Puerto Ricans. Areas where Spanish speaking was predominant began to be called Loesita. Loesita. And that is this week's third attempt of Did You Know? Did you know? <laughs> you know, sometimes the train is just chugging along the track, and then I feel like little Jimmy comes along, and he'll put a quarter on the train track, and because he, he wants to just see it smashed. He's a dick. He wants he's to like, see people die. He's like, I wanted to see that. I just want to see that quarter smashed. I want to bring it to school and show everybody like what a locomotive can do, and then. Next thing you know, the train comes around a bend and dumb little Jimmy puts it like on a turn and the train just keeps going straight because it hits something slippery. And such is the case with this week's Did You Know segment. And so are the days of our lives. Good Lord. Let's get the hell out of here. (laughs) That does it for this week's show. Again, a special thanks to this week's guest, Clockwork. Cross. Check out all of his links in our show description because yes. they'll be there. Nikki's going to make sure of that. Yes, I am. Nah, that's why you're the best. And uh, thank you all for listening to this week's show. If you feel like reaching out to us, you can reach us at highregardshow at gmail.com and find us at highregardshow.com. And you can also find us on all social media as High Regard Show. So with that, I'm Darling Nikki signing off. Oh, my God. All right. Good one. (laughs) Good night, everybody. Time.